that go a long way back in human civilization. Uh, you can go back as far as the ancient Babylonians and find that they took very accurate and detailed and interested observations of their world and especially of the heavens, the skies. The uh, ancient Greek, they had their ancient philosophers, as you know, the scientific philosophers. They loved to provide theories to explain the universe, for better or for worse. And then um, ancient Chinese culture, of course, has been for thousands of years gathering a vast wealth of accumulated knowledge of the scientific world. These are roots of scientific inquiry. But we must say that it's been in the 17th century that a scientific revolution, it's called, has come upon the Western world and really brought the Western world out of the Middle Ages and into what we call the modern era, the scientific revolution. This is where guys like Galileo kick in. So you've heard of Galileo inventing himself a lens, pointing it at the sky, realising that the moon is not a perfect sphere of crystal like he'd been told. Uh, Galileo points his telescope at Jupiter and notices that not only do we have a moon but Jupiter seems to have four moons that are orbiting not around us but around Jupiter. These were big surprises. Uh, It took the man Copernicus to suggest that the whole system would make a lot more sense if we would stop insisting that we on planet Earth are the centre of the universe and what comes out of that is, as you know, the Copernican revolution. Geocentric to heliocentric thinking. What came out of all of this, this whole movement toward investigating the world in the West, is what we call the scientific method of gaining knowledge. The idea is you make observations about your world, notice this, look at that, document this, devise a theory that explains why this and this and that, and then make predictions based on that theory, test your predictions, and if the theory and its predictions hold up, then that's your best-going explanation for the time. It was Francis Bacon who suggested that with this one tool of reason, this scientific method, then mankind might finally be able to do away with the superstitions and the mysteries of, of history that had come all the way from primal man and replace that with certain knowledge, sure knowledge about how the world holds together. That's the idea. Scientific revolution, 17th century. Now you and I have to realise what a massive paradigm shift this is, what a massive shift in thinking for the Western mind, for the, the mind that we've inherited dominantly in the West. You see, there are philosophical reasons that go back all the way to Plato that say you just can't take part of the natural world and prod it and poke it with your instruments. You just don't do that to nature. Which is why Galileo was told that, well... Galileo, there are demons in your telescope, don't you know? That's why you're seeing mountains on the moon, my dear friend. Today, we're 300 years down the track and a massive paradigm shift has well and truly taken place. Science is now the way to know anything for sure. We're talking. Perhaps in medieval times we needed the idea of a God to kind of fill in the gaps in our knowledge, those mysterious areas of things we don't understand. Plug God in there and that'll explain it. God of the gaps, if you like. But don't you know now that it's gravity that keeps the planets in orbit? It's refraction of sunlight that puts rainbows in the sky. Did you realise that? Have you ever noticed 
Rainbows are always on the opposite side of you to the sun. As the sunlight comes over your head, it's refracted back to varying degrees. A rainbow. Don't you know that it's bacteria that makes the plague strike your village and not mine? Not kind of a zap from heaven? And so as science progresses, this god of the gaps, this mysterious god, kind of evaporates, runs away. Well, I don't have to tell you that science has done a whole lot for your life and mine. We live practically twice as long as our ancestors. We grow practically twice as tall. Our parents grew up hearing stories that science was going to solve every problem tomorrow. And it's our generation, really, that has cottoned on to the idea that, uh, well, science and technology seem to be able to cause as much harm as good. So they perhaps not solve every problem, but perhaps create a whole new baggage of problems. But all in all, I think you and I go to bed at night very happy that we've woken up this side of the scientific revolution. I think it would be helpful at this point to be clear about what science is and what science is not. Because the irony is that in 300 years a whole new set of mythology has developed around science. Interesting. Science, first of all, let me say today, is by definition tentative. By that I mean it's not a collection of rules found written in a manual somewhere. This is how it is and this is how it shall be for all time. Hear ye, hear ye. What we call scientific laws the laws of science, are ideas about the world that haven't failed us yet, and so we begin to trust them. Pick up an apple, drop it, it falls down, it's gravity. But that's all these ideas are. They're observations that haven't failed us yet. So we trust that all swans are white until we discover a continent on the bottom of the planet where there are black swans. We used to say that every object can only be said to be in a particular point in space at any one time until Young does his double slit experiment with electrons and we find, well, the same electron is going through both slits at once. Now let me say very clearly, by saying that science is tentative, I'm not saying science, scientific knowledge is unreliable. Back in the 1980s, uh, the Pioneer spacecraft was launched into our solar system and just recently it's completed a spectacular voyage through the solar system. Now that whole journey was completed on the basis of laws of nature that the scientists relied on back in the 1980s. Yes, that's right, even back then. But I want to say science is epistemologically tentative in the sense that it can never possibly prove anything. The job of science is to disprove. Do you understand what I mean? You, science can only show that one idea is false and that another idea is a better explanation for the time being. That is the job of science, to disprove. Back in 1903, the scientific world was feeling pretty cocky, feeling as though the universe had pretty much been mapped out and all the last little areas of knowledge were just kind of cleaning up that had to be done over the next few decades. 
But then suddenly Rayleigh and Jeans did their famous black body radiation experiment. Physics students will come across this. The results completely defied all the expectations of classical physics. And the implication of this, what came out of all this, was the discovery of a whole world of subatomic particles. Uh, This is where the gluons and muons come in. A whole world that we'd never conceived of before, and you'll be glad to know that Newton's laws don't work in that world. I'd say the history of science has many classic examples where what seem to be trustworthy ideas have had to be thrown out the window. So can I say to you guys today, don't be deceived by the popularised depictions of science, the idea that just because a guy's wearing a white lab coat or there's some bubbling blue copper sulphate in the background, that that person has the last word to say on whatever whatever they're talking about. I find it interesting that the postmodern mind today is moving away from that kind of propaganda. Another popular myth about science is that science is atheistic or anti-God. As though you and I have to make a choice. Either it's photosynthesis that makes the grass grow or it's God. So which is it? But true science does not answer philosophical questions. Questions about why we're here or what we should do with our lives or whether or not you should poison your grandmother. Suppose there was, at the very, very beginning, a Big Bang. Suppose, at that point, all of space and time was thrown out. Well, can I say, science cannot even begin to explain why there should be any explosion of anything in the first place. Or why, out of that explosion, has come this person here who who thinks and feels and asks the question, why am I here? Science is not atheistic. Science is agnostic. That's the difference. It's not anti-God. It just can't say anything about God. Because by definition, science can only tell us about what we see and observe. It can tell us nothing about what's behind what we see. Let's get that clear. So the task of science is to comprehend the structure of the universe. And the science students among us will tell us that that is a brilliant thing to be able to do. It's fascinating and amazing and very rewarding to probe the structure of this universe. But every time a scientist writes a book about the meaning of what he or she finds, then he or she is completely entitled to do that. But at that point it's not science, it's philosophy. Do you understand the difference? Nothing wrong with doing it, but it's not science. Science is tentative, Science is agnostic. Well, can I add at this point, the world of scientists and scientific study is nowhere near as objective or purely rational as it's sometimes made out to be by the media or even by some scientists. Don't think for a minute that scientific opinions on sexuality or genetics are not coloured by the political climate of our times, the, the hedonism that drives our society. Don't think for a minute that there are no philosophical reasons why some parts of the scientific world are desperate to discover life on other planets. There's a lot riding on this. So in theory and ideally, science carries no agenda, but I want to suggest to you this afternoon that there is usually a whole lot riding on that wagon of science, a whole lot more than just 
straightforward, objective knowledge. Science is coloured, I'm afraid. It's just the reality of it. And a lot of what gets called scientific opinion is more to do with humanistic philosophy and individualism than cold hard facts. But what about God? I want to put it to you guys this afternoon that the universe we are part of is screaming out the existence of God. And I think the burden of proof is not on those of us who accept this, but those who keep on insisting that there is no God. This universe we're staring at is not a blank canvas. It's not some bland stretch of brown goop. It's a spectacular array of sights and wonders. And we haven't even grasped the beginning of yet. And the further we look inside, the more spectacular it becomes. Just uh, eight weeks after you were conceived, you had changed from a single cell into a tiny human being. Just eight weeks. A tiny human body with face and arms and and legs and and budding fingers and toes and a little heart beating. And then you were born with the capacity to learn and, and think and act and achieve amazing acts of intelligence and creativity. Anyone with the slightest interest in biology or geography or the natural world has to concede that this is a spectacular universe, however you explain it. It's spectacular. And I find it very curious that physicists like Paul Davies at the University of Adelaide, who himself is not a Christian, he he subscribes to no religious system, he claims, but he still insists as a physicist that the universe we're looking at is... It's a masterpiece. And it needn't have been that way. This is the point when he writes. If you look in Fisher Library, you'll find Paul Davies' books. Look them up. It's very interesting. Um, It needn't have been this way, is his big claim. You see, inside the nucleus of atoms, for example, the nuclear strong force that holds protons and neutrons together, Paul Davies talks about the way how even if this force were just a slight bit stronger, you could just tweak it just a little bit, there would be no hydrogen, no stars, no sun our universe would be just this cold, lifeless expanse of lumps. Uh, any, any weaker than it is, and the whole universe would be a blank canvas of hydrogen atoms. That's the point. The nuclear resonance of carbon, let me tell you about that, inside stars, two uh, helium nuclei are fused together under the pressure. And as the two helium nuclei come together, they form an extremely unstable form of beryllium. It falls apart within a split second. But during that split second, what they call the nuclear resonance frequency of that kind of temporary nucleus is just the right setting so that it swallows up another helium nuclear and hey presto, you've got carbon. Paul Davies talks about the way how this nuclear resonance value for hydrogen is just so perfectly tuned that... If it was changed, his, his figure is by one ten thousandth of a percent, tweak that value, we would have no carbon. There would be no life in this universe. Physicists are calling this the anthropic principle. It's as though the universe is being set up with all the dials set so that life will exist on planet Earth. The anthropic principle. 
Paul Davies explains how the only way to give explanation to this, and at this point he's going to philosophy, the only way to explain this is to propose that there must be an infinite number of parallel universes with all the dials at different settings, and we just happen to be in one that has the dials in the right setting, parallel universes all happening at once, or else it's designed that way. People say, I need proof of God's existence, but I put it to you today that our very existence testifies to a creator God. (coughs) Our very existence leaves us, in fact, with no excuse but to acknowledge that we have been made. And I put it to you that the reason people are so desperate to remove this idea of God is because if there is a God who made me, then it is to that God that I am accountable. It's to that God that I owe an account of my life. A very pertinent verse of the Bible is printed on your outline. It's from Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his divine power and divine nature, the things that, the things that make God God, Divine power, eternal power, divine nature, those invisible qualities have been clearly seen. Being understood from what's made so that people are without excuse. And I say arguments about evolution and creation are not going to help at this point. Uh, When I used to teach evolution to my science students, I taught it as a theory with a lot going for it but still a theory with plenty of gaping holes but that is what it is you see natural selection is not the problem Uh, natural selection is where the different genes in a species give it advantages in its environment and survival of the fittest makes sure that the good genes get passed on natural selection happens Uh, a particular moth for example might have genes for black or white colour and if the bark on the trees is dark the birds are going to eat the white moths the black moths survive the it happens all the time but the crucial thing to understand is that natural selection is not evolution The moths are still working with the same set of genes they had in the first place. They always had the genes for black and white. It's just that we've killed off the weaklings. What evolution needs is the appearance of new genes by mutation. And again, mutation happens all the time. It's happening in you now. Cosmic radiation is streaming through this room. Radiation coming out of the rocks underneath us. Every time your cells multiply, there are copying errors. The mutations happen. Oh, yes. The problem is that mutations are almost never, 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 never good. That's why when they happen in your body, your body busily fights them. And when it loses the battle, you, you end up with a cancerous lump of mutated cells. You end up with congenital deformities in children. What evolution needs is mutation after mutation after mutation after mutation, which is good, 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 good. 
and then it needs that individual to pass on those fancy new genes to its progeny. Just think of how many good mutations it would take for the first eyeball to appear on this planet. Not just not just one fluky cell that can happen to turn light into electricity, but a whole cluster of cells, a whole cluster of specialised tissues that are able to manipulate and focus. <coughs> Evolution wants that to happen more than once from scratch. I find that unbelievable. Read some documents that do the math. The kind of probabilities we're talking about here are not called probabilities anymore. They're called impossibilities. And personally, I think it's not surprising that the fossil record isn't showing the transitional forms that it's supposed to. I think the biggest problem with evolution is that it's ridiculously improbable. Just the first cell to appear in the mud would have to be the most spectacular fluke. You'd have more chance, I would say, of putting the pieces of a Lego man and his friend and his car and his house into a paper bag and shaking it around until they all come together. You'd need 20 different kinds of amino acids for your most basic cell. You need the lightning to strike the mud and literally build hundreds of these amino acids accidentally arranged into the right sequences to make proteins. You need a few hundred of these different proteins to happen to find each other and work together to produce some sort of connection that can reproduce itself. The argument is that when you've got millions of years, well, even the most improbable things happen. I say so that's the Lego man. Can I say, I don't mean to poke fun. This is a serious theory and a serious attempt. But its biggest problem is its sheer improbability. I think it takes a lot of faith to believe it. Can I also say at this point, I think that it's possible that the evidence may turn up for evolution. The evolutionary process may be shown to be undeniably true. But personally, I don't think that would be a problem for the Bible either. This is my personal view. Christians in the past have tried to make Genesis into a lab report. But I think the first chapters of the Bible are written to explain to us who made us and why, not how and when. There's a poetic form to the words. There's a different order of creation in the first chapter and the second chapter, deliberately done with a deliberate theological point to it. And personally, I think there seems to be a definite polemic to Genesis, as though it's written specifically to combat the other creationary accounts that went around the ancient world at the time, of which we had many copies. That's a personal reckoning. I think it's entirely possible that the God described in the Bible could create this world in six days or in an instant. Entirely possible. But the more I look at the world, the more I think that Genesis doesn't have to be read that way. And I think that's fine to use our observations to work out what the Bible is not saying. That's a personal view. But what Genesis does affirm loudly and clearly is that you and I are not gigantic flukes. You're not a bag of chemicals sitting here this afternoon waiting to return to dust. And I think you know that. You and I have been designed 
and purposely be made, purposefully made, and we've been set apart from the other things that have been designed and purposefully made. In a sense, we have a responsibility to acknowledge the one who made us in the way that horses and jellyfish and igneous rocks just can't and won't. You and I can. We should. The tragedy is that this is the very thing we do not do, you see. Day after day, we wake up and live as though there's nothing more to the universe than the four walls around me. Nothing more to my life than the gossip and footy scores and my career. And you and I are part of a society that deliberately suppresses and refuses to think about the obvious truth that we are created beings. You would think, wouldn't you, that a foolishness and an arrogance like that would make you and I culpable before this God. You would think so. You'd think there'd have to be some kind of reckoning, some kind of justice against that kind of defiance. A defiance that runs, runs so deep in our human psyche. The kind of defiance that you and I know well, it, it prickles your conscience, doesn't it? It's the sting of regret and guilt and shame. That's where you know it. The Bible describes that as a defiance of created God. The good news in the Bible is that the God who creates also reveals, shows his face again. And the claim of the New Testament is that the spectacular life of Jesus, a spectacular life, showed that he came from God. He came from, if you like, outside the universe. And he came to save. Died a horrible death, you can read about it. A horrible death on behalf of those who arrogantly ignore their creator God. A death that can see even the guilt of that paid for. A death that can bring forgiveness. This is the claim of the New Testament. The New Testament goes on to claim that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, coming out of a grave, yes, a dead man starting to breathe again, that's right. It double underlines his identity. But this man is even the key to the eternal destiny of What can a scientist say at this point? Well, I can say, he can say nothing to the life of Jesus. Any historian will tell you there was a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus. But could he possibly have come out of a grave, got up from the dead? And the most a scientist can do at this point is collect up hundreds of dead bodies bring them into the lab, check their vital signs for three days and conclude, no, dead men don't rise. But what the New Testament is claiming is that he was no ordinary man and unfortunately we don't have any more sons of God to bring into the lab. What we do have What we do have is the documented evidence of eyewitnesses that make up the four Gospels of the New Testament. That's what they claim to be. 
And what we do have is historical evidence both inside and outside of the pages of the Bible to say that in the first century a small band of uneducated fishermen and their friends were one minute bewildered and confused over the death of their leader and overnight literally became bold and determined band of preachers claiming that this guy had risen from the dead, risking their lives, in fact giving their lives for that claim, which was either true or a lie, giving their lives for that. Claiming that after his body was placed in the tomb, he appeared to them. What a true scientist should do at this point, what a scientist should do, is ask if there really was such a man, such a one-off person in that first century, someone who was not just human like we, but somehow divine, somehow connected to the outside. And if he really was raised up from the dead after being crucified, and if, if in fact the teachings of that man actually made sense of his death and explained why he would rise up, then what trail of evidence should we expect to find? What documents and, and fragments should we expect coming through history? What ripples should we expect to see over 2,000 years? Exactly the documents and the fragments we do see, surely. Believing in Jesus is not about a blind leap in the dark. It's not about closing your mind to reason and, and trying with all your might to believe in something that you know is false. If we are created beings, it is not unreasonable to think of a man coming from the outside if this creator God has any interest at all in this world. It is not unreasonable. If Jesus did these things and said what he said, if he did get up from the dead, then you and I have some serious thinking to do about that. And what I say to you today is that science may be a wonderful thing but it is no excuse at this point. If you are someone who's been plodding along through life with some kind of vague respect for Jesus but no real intention of checking out his claim to be the key to your eternal destiny, then you're kidding yourself and you're insulting him. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you're in trouble with the God who made you. The picture of God offered in the Bible is nothing like the vague and mysterious God of the gaps in the medieval times. The God that kind of wafts benignly in the gaps of our knowledge. The God revealed in the Bible and in the life of Jesus stands outside and independent of everything else that he's made. Photosynthesis, plate tectonics, nuclear fusion, they're all his. Which is what makes being a Christian scientist perfect sense. And human history belongs to this God, is the claim of God. So that he doesn't just stand back from this creation wondering how it's all going to turn out and wondering perhaps if he's created a monster. But this God is front-footed and, and purposeful and involved. He not only creates but reveals himself in that creation. 
and makes promises and assurances about how things will be. And the promise to you and I in the New Testament, if it's reliable, is that those who will humble themselves before this God and acknowledge Jesus as the one he has sent, turn from living a life of ignoring him to a life of following him, then those people will find in him forgiveness and joy and eternal life. That is the promise. And they too will rise up from the dead as Jesus did. That is the promise. I put it to you today that given the evidence we have for the spectacular life of Jesus, this is not crazy talk. And my word to you today as a student of science and a student of the Bible is come to Jesus and receive the gift.